Good morning. It's good to see everybody again. I think I've preached here five or six times in the last 10 years, and I was curious. It had felt like a long time. I went on Sermon Audio this morning just to see the timestamp, and it's been four years since I was able to accept an invitation from you guys. They have been offered since then, but I haven't been able to till now, so thank you. Thank you for having me again. My wife and children are here. Since we were here last, we've had one additional son, and there's one on the way now. So we praise the Lord for that. And I also bring you greetings from Grace Baptist Church in Hartsville, from Donnie Martin, Carol Carmen, and Chris Davis. Thank you. Thank you for being our brothers and sisters and for the fellowship we've had. You would open your Bibles then to Revelation chapter 22. We're going to read verses 1 to 5. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. There will be no light of lamp, no need. There will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once more. Father, we are careful and troubled and distracted about many things. But one thing is needful. So Lord, please come. And help me today uh, to preach the word of God clearly. And Lord, I pray for the encouragement of your saints here in Nashville. Lord, that we would long for the coming of the kingdom. And for what we're going to do forever. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite scenes from Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy is the scene in The Return of the King where the white city, Minas Tirith, is under siege. Orc armies are hurling huge boulders at the walls. Cave trolls are battering down, you know, the doors. And little Pippin, the halfling, is sitting there with Gandalf the White. Gandalf, you know, who's basically in the story, come down from heaven, descended to the dead, come back, and so on. And with sadness in his voice, Pippin says, I didn't think it would end this way. Gandalf looks at him and says, end? Oh, the journey doesn't end here. No, death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What, Gandalf? See what? White shores. And beyond, 
far green country under a swift sunrise. Well, that isn't so bad, is it? Said Pippin. No, no, it isn't. And then the troll starts pounding on the door again. And we're reminded, oh yeah, the battle's still raging. This is basically what we have here in Revelation 22. It speaks to us in the midst of the battle, in our lowest of times, and it says, this is what's coming. The passage we just read is the climax of Revelation. In fact, it's not only the climax of Revelation. In many ways, it's also the climax of the entire Bible. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to see the similarities between Revelation 22 and Genesis 1 and 2. It's no accident that the church has traditionally placed the book of Revelation at the end of the canon. Because the first few chapters of Genesis and the last few chapters of Revelation serve as a kind of bookends for the whole big story of the Bible. and tie the whole thing together. There is a number of similarities that we can see here between the beginning of Genesis and the end of Revelation. And yet in each case, there's also a ratcheting up from the beginning to the end. Because that's what Jesus does. He doesn't just restore things to their original pristine condition. He makes them better. He makes them better. The final state of glory is better than the original state of innocence. And so, for example, the Bible begins with a garden and it ends with a garden city. It begins with a world that is unfallen, but also untamed. Which is why God said, subdue the earth, take dominion, meaning take this garden and expand it throughout all the earth. So the Bible begins with a, with the, with a mission being given and it ends with that mission being accomplished, not by the first Adam, though, but by the last Adam, Jesus Christ. The Bible begins with a garden surrounded by gold and onyx stone. Just in the ground waiting to be dug up and used to beautify stuff. And the Bible ends with a city that has gold in its streets and onyx in its gates. The Bible begins with a tree of life. And it ends with that tree having become a grove. I don't know how else you could have the tree of life growing on either side of the river here unless the word tree is being used collectively. The Bible begins with two people who were told to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and it ends with a multitude too many to number from every tribe, tongue, and nation redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In short, the Bible begins with a creation that was geared toward a goal, and it ends with a new creation that has finally reached that goal. And the reason it has reached that goal is because of the one who said, I am the living one who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The question I have, and the question that I see answered in this text, is simply, what are we going to do when we get there? What are we going to do forever and ever? This is about as clear as a description of glory as we're going to get in this life. Though even here, we still see through a glass darkly. And I say that not only because of the symbolic language here, but also because it's just hard for us to imagine doing anything forever and ever. I mean, our lives and our attention spans are so short that it's just hard for us to think about eternity without wondering, are we going to get bored? I mean, how exactly are we going to fill all that time? 
It's hard for us to imagine. But with John's help and the Lord's, we're going to try this morning. I can't cover this text as adequately as it deserves. In fact, I had to leave out the beginning of verse 5 for the sake of time. But with God's help, I would like us to meditate on four things that we're going to be doing forever and ever. Number one, we will drink from the water of life. Verse one, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. This image of a river goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, where we read that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Even more so, it goes back to the passage our brother read in Ezekiel 47 a moment ago, where Ezekiel sees a river flowing from under the temple until it slowly deepens into a river. A river so pure and so fresh that wherever it goes, it brings life. Even the Dead Sea, a lake so salty nothing can live in it, becomes fresh when this river flows into it. Genesis 2, the river flows out of Eden. In, Genesis, in, Ex, in Ezekiel 47, the river flows out of the temple. And here, the river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the streets of the new Jerusalem. And that's where we're going someday. And the reason I say that we're going to drink from this river, even though the word drink doesn't occur in verse 1, is because the river is said to flow with the water of life. And according to Revelation, that's what you do with the water of life. You drink it. Chapter 21, verse 6, Jesus says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the thirsty. And if you wonder how God intends for this imagery to land on you, well, just imagine. Just imagine how you would feel if you were on a long journey through a dry and barren land where there was no water. Imagine your water skin is almost empty. You're having to squeeze every last drop out of it to, to quench your thirst. Your, your tongue is cleaving to the roof of your mouth. The wind is hot. Your sandals are cracked. The sun is beating down and the sand is blowing in your eyes. And when all of a sudden then, all of a sudden, when your strength is almost gone, up in the distance, you see it. Oh, city with a river flowing out of it. Just imagine the joy and the gladness you would feel at the sight and the sound of water flowing. Water, not a roaring, restless sea that strikes fear into men's hearts, but a river that makes glad the city of our God. That's how the book of Revelation describes this journey that we're on, this pilgrimage. It's like a journey through a dry and thirsty land. And that's why in chapter 7, we read that when we get there, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. Why? For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. It'll be Psalm 23 forever and ever as he leads us beside the still waters. 
And we will never be thirsty again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. And when it comes to drinking this water of life, there is a double good news for us this morning. There's a double good news. On the one hand, the good news is that this drinking is not entirely future. Not entirely. Even though John is describing the future here, you don't have to wait until you die or until Jesus returns to drink of this water. In fact, if you do, it will be too late to drink from it. If you're thirsty today, you can start drinking from the pure water of life now by faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 22, verse 17, we hear this invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires whosoever wills, let him come take the water of life freely. Or as Jesus puts it in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke about the spirit who had not yet been given because Christ was not yet glorified. But, but now he is glorified and the spirit has been given. And now he, Jesus can give this living water to anyone who comes to him in faith. This is why anyone can drink and no one is disqualified. I and mean, if Jesus were to charge money for the Holy Spirit and the water of life, then the poor would be discriminated against because they couldn't afford it. Right? If, Jesus were to char- if Jesus were to require a PhD to drink the water of life, well, most of us in this room would be out of luck. But all that he requires is that you be thirsty. All that he requires, that's, and that's what faith does. Faith cries out to Jesus with parched lips and says, Lord, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And I have nowhere else to go but to you. I've tried. It's not that I haven't tried. I've tried other fountains. I've tried politics. I've tried religion. I've tried social activism. I've tried LSD. I've tried positive thinking and gender transitioning. And they all leave me empty because they're all broken cisterns that can hold no water. So, Lord, I'm thirsty. And I got nowhere else to go. Only you have the words of eternal life. And if you're willing, you can give it to me. To which Jesus responds, I am willing. I'm willing. Come and drink. So, the first part of the good news is that you don't got to wait, you can start drinking today. And that water of life can become in you a well springing up to eternal life. The second part of the good news here is that the first part is only the beginning. (laughs) Because if you're a Christian today, the water that you're drinking now, it's just a trickle compared to what's coming. It's just a trickle. In the words of the old song, O Christ He is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness, His mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The river that's coming is so pure, 
that you're going to have to be changed before you can even handle it. But you will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. That's one thing we're going to do forever and ever. We're going to drink from the water of life. The second, not only will we drink from the river of life, we will eat from the tree of life. We will eat from the tree of life. Middle of verse 2 says, Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, the Old Testament background for this tree is exactly the same as it was for the river. Right? You remember that river, how that river in Ezekiel 47 came out from under the temple? Well, Ezekiel 47 also describes trees growing along either side of that, that river. Trees whose leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. It's kind of like a Psalm 1 river here. But they will bear fruit each month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So there's one background. But of course, the, the original background for this is Genesis chapter 2, once again, where we read, quote, that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Genesis 2, 9. And the main thing we read there about the tree of life in those early chapters is simply that after man sinned, he was banned from eating from it. And Genesis 3, 24 says that after God had Pronounced judgment on the man and the woman and the serpent. God drove out the man. And east, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Lest, God said, man should reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. We were banned. And yet almost from the very beginning, there are hints that God had a plan to get us back in and to give us access to the tree of life once again. It was a plan that those cherubim longed to look into. Someone greater than Adam was going to come and he was going to walk into that flaming sword for you and for me. And he was going to reopen the gates of paradise for us. In the words of the church father Irenaeus, the sin that was wrought through the tree was undone by the obedience of the tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might eat from this tree. And once again, there's a double good news here. Once again, this eating is not entirely a matter of waiting. Even now, our healing can begin as we come to Jesus and we feast on Him by faith, the One who came down from heaven, by whose wounds, Isaiah says, we are healed. Even now, and I speak of healing here because that's how verse 2 describes the effect of this tree. Its leaves were for the healing of the nations. And even now, for you, that healing process can begin. And yet, 
There are some wounds so deep that they simply will not be healed in this life. So if you're interested in Jesus because you think he's going to fix all your problems now, all your relationships now, give you your best life now with no cross, no pain, you're going to be disappointed. But you're going to walk away sorrowful like the rich young ruler because it's not going to happen. There are some wounds so deep that they simply won't heal in this world. But the reason that that's not crushing news is because there's a better world coming. A world where the flaming swords are extinguished. A world where the tree of life is free for the taking. And where the nations are finally healed. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. And just imagine again. Imagine the nations and the peoples of this world gathered around the throne. With all the gaping wounds that have been left upon us. Many of them self-inflicted. Many of them inflicted by the sins of others. All of them inflicted as a result of sin and the curse. And now try to imagine all of those wounds healed. No more curse, verse 3 says. Thorns and thistles removed. Swords beaten into plowshares. The blind receiving their sight. The mute singing for joy. The lame leaping like a deer. The mentally handicapped seeing the world through new eyes for the first time. Sorrow and sighing fleeing away. All of your sins. All of your pains. All of your emotional scars. Gone. Fully gone. And you get to eat from the tree of life forever. We often ask questions like, you think we'll know each other in heaven? You think you'll know my wife in heaven? To which my answer is, well, why not? Of course you will. But when I think about this, when I think about what it will mean for the nations to be healed, what I wonder about is, will we even know ourselves? Will we even know ourselves when, when all of those nagging habits and besetting sins and childhood fears that have been with you for so long that you don't even know what it's like to be you without them? They're so much a part of you, you're tempted to define yourself by them. Sins and pains that cling so closely. And when you get there, you're still going to be there and those things won't be there anymore. You'll probably be wondering, I don't even know me. Never in our happiest dreams could we imagine. Because you don't yet know what full healing is like. Someday you will. As the last Adam opens the gates and gives you access to the tree of life. Forever and ever. Please don't miss this. No, don't hear this and squander the opportunity. Trade anything rather than miss this. It's not worth it. Whatever it is, it's not worth it. To the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Chapter 2, verse 7. That's what we're going to do forever. I'm going to eat from the tree of life. I'm going to drink from the river of life. Number three, we will see the face 
of God. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, No longer there will be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. This is in contrast to those in chapter 13 who were said to have the name of the beast on their foreheads. Chapter 14, verse 1 says that the servants of God have the Lamb's name and His Father's name written on their forehead. Same thing here. So I find it interesting that John says they will see His face. His face. Because if you ask whose face, well, the answer to the previous verse is God and the Lamb. So I might have expected John to speak to say, we'll, we'll, we'll see their face. Being as it's what they call a double antecedent, a plural antecedent for all you English people. And that wouldn't be unprecedented. It's three persons in the Godhead. The scripture does sometimes use plural pronouns to refer to them. John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we, me and my Father, we will come and make our home with him. So, given that John is speaking here of God and the Lamb, it wouldn't have been out of the question for him to say, we shall see their face, and yet he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, he focuses on the oneness of the Godhead. Notice also verse 3 speaks of the throne, singular, of God and of the Lamb. Throne singular because there's one power, one authority that they both share. And then verse 3 also says, His servants will worship Him. They'll worship Him, singular, because there's only one God whom we worship. Only one God. One divine nature. Shared equally between all three. Undivided. One object of our worship. To worship one person of the Holy Trinity is to worship all three. And to deny worship to any person of the Trinity is to deny it to all three. As John says in his first epistle, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And they go together. Because they're one God whom we worship. One God with one throne and one name and one face. And we will see His face. I used to spend time wondering, which person of the Trinity will we actually see? I mean, will we only see the Son? I mean, after all, He's the only one that's physical and visible. Will we, will we never see the Father and the Spirit? You might be like, that seems like a dumb question. Well, the longer I read the Bible and read old dead guys who are holier and, and smarter than I am, the more I realize that question is just misguided. That's a waste of time. Right? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God. Yeah, there's three persons, but there's one God. And Jesus doesn't say, if you've seen me, you don't have to see the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Because we actually see the Father through Jesus Christ because they look exactly alike. Hebrews 1.3 says He's the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. And according to 2 Corinthians 4.6, God has one face and the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Matthew 18.10. Matthew 18.10, Jesus says that the angels in heaven are continually seeing the face of His Father. I ask, are, are we to be less privileged than angels whom Jesus hasn't even shed His blood for? I doubt it. Do I understand what it means to see the face of someone who's invisible? No, that's above my pay grade. But I expect we'll find out. I expect we'll find out. We will see His face. For now we know in part. But then we shall know even as we are known. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that to see God is the whole purpose of all religion and the ultimate goal of every endeavor. As David says in Psalm 27, one thing I've asked for and that will I seek after. One thing, everything else is subordinate to that one thing. Well, what is that one thing? Well, he says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days and gaze upon his beauty. I want to see God. Verse four promises someday we will. If we conquer Satan by the blood of the lamb, if we refuse to have that divided heart that wants to have Jesus and the beast, we will see God. And it won't just be a fleeting glance like that time you saw Keith Urban in the coffee shop in Nashville. You will be with him forever and ever. Amen. Fanny Crosby. When she was only six weeks old, Fanny Crosby got an eye infection. Y'all know who Fanny Crosby is, right? She's a great hymn writer. Thousands of hymns. Six weeks old, she got an eye infection. And to make matters worse, the family doctor was away and the guy that came in his place turned out to be kind of a quack. And he administered some cure to her that ended up costing her her sight. So she's blind the rest of her life. So as far as her memory goes, she's born blind. You know, later in her life, when she became a famous hymn writer, well-meaning people were always saying things to her like, you know, what a great pity. That the master didn't bestow sight on you when you bestowed so many other gifts. It's really helpful advice for someone, right? But Fanny Crosby didn't give in to self-pity. Or if she did, she fought it hard. When she was only eight years old, she wrote a poem, eight years old. The poem, a poem that said this. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. But the main thing she would say to those Job's comforters was this. Don't feel sorry for me that I was born blind. Because you know what that means? That means that when I get to heaven, the first face I'm ever going to see is the face of my Savior Jesus Christ. 
It's the first one. When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the morning runs eternal, bright and fair, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side and His smile will be the first to welcome me. And then I shall see Him face to face and sing the story, saved by grace. We'll see His face together forever. That's what we're going to do forever. We're going to drink from the river of life. We're going to eat from the tree of life. We're going to see the face of God. And then finally, number four, we will reign forever and ever. We will reign forever and ever. What little girl doesn't wish she were a princess? What little boy doesn't pretend like he's a king? Certainly this desire for royalty has been warped by our sin. I've known plenty of little kids who wanted to be queens so they could tell everybody else what to do. But the desire to reign is not a sin. The desire to reign is part of the image of God. When Adam and Eve were told to have dominion, over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air. That, that was royal language. Right? They were God's vice regents, his representatives on earth designed to rule and to reign under the high kingship of Yahweh. So kingship and queenship are part of who we are as God's image bearers. The desire to reign has been broken, but it has never gone away. And according to verse 5, someday it's going to be fulfilled. Someday God is going to provide us with an eternal outlet for this desire. Chapter 11, verse 15 says that he shall reign forever and ever, referring to God and his Christ. Chapter 22, verse 5 says that we shall reign forever and ever, referring to all who are in Christ. Imagine a kingdom that never passes away. Imagine a realm that never rises and falls. Imagine a dominion that never gets invaded or attacked or replaced by a rival where the monarchs never perish and the dynasty never dies out. Imagine that. What you're imagining is real. It's called the kingdom of God. And we are those monarchs. When John says they shall reign forever and ever, he's not talking about some elite subset. Of the people of God. He's talking about all the people of God. We shall reign forever and ever. And Queen Elizabeth's 70 year reign is going to seem like a brief interregnum compared to the eternal reign of the, of the children of God in glory. C.S. Lewis's novel, Perilandra, an angel is having a conversation with a guy named Ransom. And he's telling Ransom about the day when Malel deal, that's, that's what they call Jesus in the uh, world of the space trilogy. He's telling Ransom about the day when Malel deal will tear the sky curtain and deep heaven shall become familiar to our eyes and our bodies will be changed. To which Ransom replies, and that will be the end. The end. The angel says, who spoke of an end? About that time, 
we shall not be far from the beginning of all things. Ransom's like, I'm confused. What you call the beginning, we're accustomed to speaking of as the last things, eschatology. I do not call it the beginning, said the angel. It's but the wiping out of a false start in order that the world may then begin. Eternal life begins now for all who trust in Jesus, but it's barely begun. It's barely begun. The best is yet to come, and it's only going to keep getting better. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We'll just be settling in. The gray rain curtain of the world will roll back, and then we'll see it. The king in his beauty, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God where everything sad comes untrue. And David's prayer is finally answered and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze upon his beauty. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, lift up our eyes. Lord, I know we got to go back to life this week. But thank you for the first day of the week. Thank you for a kind of mountaintop at the beginning of each week in which we can focus on the things that are not seen, but the things that are eternal. And so, Father, strengthen our faith. Give us the conviction of what we're hoping for and the assurance of things we haven't yet seen. Help us not to grow weary. Lord, use your promises today to keep us going for your glory and for the good of our neighbors. In Jesus' name.